from Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges, where we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, let's get into it. Our purpose? To do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage, and the rest of us? Well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations, and together, let's etch the edges. Welcome back to the Edge the Edges podcast, where we do the work of getting knee-to-knee with a special guest speaker, and we lean into discomfort often enough and we do it. We get it done. We close the ideological divide. And how do we do that? We do that most importantly by sharing stories, having everyday conversations with often enough everyday people who decide to step up and do outsized things, who are perfectly willing to put themselves out there and say, hey, you know, it's not about seeing me. It's about paying attention to this thing, that topic, that issue. And today we've got a special guest. His name is Josh Lewis. And Josh is about putting himself out there for point and purpose. Josh, welcome to the show. Yes, it's great to be here. Absolutely glad to have you, buddy. So we're going to just dive right in as we often do. Josh, please tell the listeners about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you about? Well, I, I guess you could say I am a CPA by day and I am a conservative blogger and podcaster by night. So I wear two very different hats. I work for the state of Oklahoma and the state auditor's office. We're the good guys. We don't audit taxpayers. We audit governments. So we're the ones looking out for the little guy. But in my, in, in my uh, private time, my great passion is this ill-defined and, and difficult to grapple with idea called conservatism and trying to translate what is often centuries-old ideas to younger professionals such as myself in a world in which labels like conservative or liberal tend to imply a, a great deal of radicalism and extremism associated with them. Now, I'm not a moderate by any stretch, but I also recognize that the way in which that word tends to be used and abused these days is not, uh, it is not conducive for, say, sensible, uh, cerebral, reasonable government or, or conversations or even lifestyle. And so that's that's sort of my passion. That's what I try to do, as the name implies, with my show "Saving Elephants." It, it's it's a you know a bit tongue in cheek, but kind of a notion that my political party, and I recognize I'm an extreme minority here, took a wrong direction, specifically in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. But to be honest with you, I think that helped a lot of us clearly see that there were underpinnings at work for years prior to and even after that that I think need to be addressed and called out. In, in a very serious, uh, sober manner. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Well, that's great, Josh. Thank you for that. 
And before I go to the first question, I, I, I just want to put a little bit of flavor on it, on what you said myself and, and, and I, and I, in just, in my, from my perspective, repeat and see what it is you said. And I really like that. You said saving elephants, saving elephants. And yes, it's tongue in cheek, but I, I want folks to recognize that, you know, Josh has applied a label to himself and he's very specific about which party he said he belongs to. And he said saving. That to me implies a lot of critical thinking and reasoning with regard to the direction political parties in this country have taken. And I, and, and folks who check out SGA just know I've got a site, um, a sister site that ties to the SGA site that talks about the GOP taking the party back. I mean, you know, uh, I think it's no small amount of, of uh, reasoning and understanding is required to know that there are a ton of people in the GOP who feel that the party has been hijacked and that there has to be a movement afoot to bring things back in line, not necessarily so much in line as to go with, you know, the way things were before. Because Josh, I think you said it, there were structural things, cracks in the foundation, let's mm -hmm. say that. And from my perspective, I think that there are cracks in the foundation across the board. I think, personal perspective, the elevation of Barack Obama to the White House opened up all kinds of disparities. And I think it unlocked a lot of emotions that a lot of folks were keeping pent up, you know, um, you know just, just shelved and, and kept away for reasons of propriety, let's say that. I used to like to say that uh, the evolution of Web 2.0 was going to elevate our politics and move us forward. And folks that listen to the show have heard me say this more than enough. Oh my God, I was wrong. What <laughs> 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 Web 2.0 did was uncourt the, the, the sewage that was sitting in everybody's backyard and everybody said, let it flow, here, drink it. It's nasty, but it's so good. And folks just have been biting and attacking and dragging and, and pulling each other down. But to a point you said earlier, I agree. I think it's necessary. We've been walking through a crucible, mm -hmm. walking through a crucible and it's a crucible of necessity where things that we felt, things that we think, things that we believe have to be aired out. And the only way to air them out is to get knee to knee and talk about it. And that leads me to my first question. You know, um, like you said, by night champion conservative. So for the listeners, Josh, tell us your definition as you see it, as you see it, because perspective is always important and what you think matters, what's conservatism? <laughs> that is a phenomenally difficult question to answer. And totally, totally. I am someone who takes this deathly serious. I mean, I read a ton about what conservatives, you know, I, I, I somewhat jokingly say some of what Saving Elephants tries to do is I read all those old boring books from old dead white guys from two centuries ago and try to translate it, you know, as, okay, here's what they were trying to say. And that's how it applies to us. Conservative, and, and here's the thing, those who consider themselves conservative, especially if you get into the intellectual tradition, spend an inordinate amount of time sitting around debating what conservatism is. And so there is nothing I'm going to say that is the, you know, the, the, the one size fits all response and, I, and, I, and I'm going to interrupt you real quick, Josh, just yes. to throw something in. 
just what you say about conservatism, listeners, understand that academics, thinkers, free thinkers, and folks who want to engage do the same thing about liberalism. Oh, same, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, liberalism is another term that has greatly evolved over the years. Uh, that being said, it, and I, I think the most pithy understanding I've heard was the the uh, British philosopher, Sir Roger Scruton, said of conservatism that it begins with a sentiment. And so we start immediately saying, okay, this isn't an ideology at first. It, it's more an emotion and impulse, uh, a persuasion. And that sentiment is that good things are easily created. I'm sorry, I've got that backwards. Good things are easily destroyed, but not created. Therefore, we ought to conserve. We ought to take heed for those things. And he goes on to express that this sentiment is honestly something that all reasonable people hold. They don't have to be conservative. We recognize this, right? Our family, uh, the things we're given, they sadly can be taken from us by one tragedy. They take an immense amount of time and effort to build. And so it's a, it's a certain disposition towards life of, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, trusting the devil you know rather than the one that you don't. It's kind of that orientation. Obviously, it's not that simple. It builds from that. We, we build more complexity to it. One of the things making conservatism in the United States particularly difficult is that conservatism itself often is a, is a highly contextual idea, that what it means to be an American conservative, say, is different than what it means to be a conservative in the Ottoman Empire, say, in the 1600s. We're trying to conserve very different things. And one of the ironies, you mentioned the word liberal, is that to a certain degree, conservatism is about conserving liberalism. Now, I mean by liberalism, not as it's understood today as being of the left or progressivism, but the classical sense, the idea of the, you know, the, the uh, most beautifully expressed life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Right. American conservatives are trying to conserve, ironically, a liberal tradition. And this is also why it's such a messy definition, because it's it's not simple. Liberalism is not fully compatible with conservatism, and yet conservatives recognize it is a it is one of those good things easily destroyed but not easily created. So I'll, I'll stop there. There's a lot of pieces to that, but I'll stop exactly. there. Exactly. Yes, tons of pieces. Can we add to that, Josh? That even and, and well, I just want to glom onto that point because it's very salient and very important. I would say learned conservatives understand the nuance that you just stated. Because unfortunately, and uh, my, my daughter and I are having a conversation around this now, and it's not nice to call people myrmidons, but myrmidons, because, and, and by that we're talking lemmings, people who find a lot of energy and passion in, 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 in purpose, in not thinking, or at least not <laughs> thinking for themselves. So they would, I think their statement, that, that statement you just made would sail right by them and they would wait for you to do something like say, um, let's go Brandon or yes. just to throw out one word so they can rally and completely miss that you said conservatism is a lot about preserving liberalism, which is in its traditional sense from when we started to have this era of diversification of government from traditional norms. Matriarchies were, uh, um, um, were changing, right? Folks wanted to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those traditional and original ideals were, were, were codified in the government of the United States. 
And that, and, 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 and your point, it's, it is fascinating. You want to conserve something that was hard fought, hard won, hard built. And that's absolutely right. It is. But most folks won't get that. Most folks won't get that. They don't, in my opinion, my perspective, they don't see the ties that bind. And also you can get too lost in the mix if you look at it too long. Because what we can't deny is that those traditions, those things, those though the mores that grew from them, powerful as they are, were not for everybody. And that is the continual struggle and evolution of a very uh, sacred idea. I love to tell people that I think the United States, the greatest country on earth and the greatest human experiment in governance ever amongst um, human beings that we know of, unless you happen to believe what are those big old videos that those three hour shows that come on in, on the internet, Josh, where they talk about Atlantis and the and the civilizations of human beings way, way right. back. I mean, where did they come up with that? I mean, I'm a writer too, and I'm like, damn, you know what I mean? How do you, anyway, in reality, from what we know, right, this this is it, this is the best. And I, I comfortably say without any rancor, right, that there was an evil root at the founding of our country. And the word evil most certainly applies. We all know what it is and we should never skirt it. We shouldn't discount it. We should not try and act like it didn't happen. It's a fact. There was slavery. There was the, the founding fathers who sat together and came up with something so powerful and prodigious that for me, in my opinion, it was beyond their kin of fully understanding at the time of its creation. Because hundreds of years later, it stands. Mm -hmm. It stands in it, and if we and if we're singular in terms of just trying to focus appropriately on it, it points the way. And, and I think in that understanding, we can do some good hard work like, I don't know, saving a few elephants, getting a few folks to get knee to knee. Does that make sense, Josh? Does that sound right? No, it, it does. And, and man, there, there's a lot there. And I and I I think we're on the same page here. You know, I, I would say that. A, a very conservative idea, and, the, and here's another British philosopher. Uh, Americans like to borrow a lot of British thought. Yes. Uh, British philosopher Michael Oakeshott described the political ideologies, as he was describing it, that we often get this thing wrong, that we assume the ideology shows up and then the application. So liberalism would be a good example. We assume that, you know, it was sort of like the founding father set about reading old people's text of, well, here's how government ought to be, and that's what they gave us, and, and off we go. And that's true to a certain extent, but he used the example of cooking. He says, we have cookbooks today, but nobody believes that someone just sat down and wrote a cookbook. In reality, what they did was they probably took thousands of years of practice at hand and all this evolutionarily passed down. You know, as I've heard it said before, how many people had to die before we got the French cuisine? How many people have to eat something and find out, turns out that'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and in a sense, we can apply the same to liberalism. There is an ideology there, and it's a beautiful ideology, and it's worth preserving. But conservatism, I think, also has the wisdom to recognize the ideology does not precede thousands of years of tradition that made it possible. And there was a whole host of things coming together from the, the British tradition of the limited monarch to Christianity to Greek and Roman teaching that birthed Western civilization that got us to the point that we were the sort of susceptible society that could express this version of liberalism. And so I guess what I'm saying is conservatism is about conservative liberalism, but it's also about conserving 
those cultural mores that make something like liberalism and capitalism and, and the balance of power and the free exchange of ideas even a possibility. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and to your point, as monarchies start to fracture and fall apart, the idea, the space for this type of thinking was allowed to bloom. And it was hundreds of years in the making, right? And that's what we learn as we take the time to study history. And to your point, you know, you would want to be able to conserve that environment. You would want to be able to make sure that free thinking people can t continue to do so. I think where we lose our way, where the ideology starts to coalesce and take up space is again, it's the it's the focusing and in application of the Myrmidons. And I I want to differentiate that from the people, because I don't want people thinking he's being a crass ass. But still, you know, you can you can only say and deny so much when you look on TV, right? And you and you see it on the internet, it's on in your face. Um, folks will want to co-opt the term and try to conserve some things that we don't really need to conserve. Or I would say from my perspective again, like when I show up at a school board meeting, application of thought and premise to things that are happening today, there are people conserving or seeking to conserve things that aren't actually happening for the point and purpose of the, the, the aggregation of power. Mm -hmm. Or, and this is where we really fail, I think, my side has to win at all costs. I mean, I, and, I, and, I've, and I've talked to plenty of these people, right? You know, um, I'm gonna vote Democrat or Republican, and that's just it. The other side is evil, but we all live here. <laughs> we, we live here together. And again, the context, the nuance, the understanding is very important. And I think that's where what you do, in my opinion, again, is highly, um, is very much necessary taking the context and the understanding of where these thoughts and these ideas come from and try to apply them to what we do today, make them much more realistic, understand where they come from, why we use the terms we, we use and make them make sense. For me personally, right? I, I try not to glom on to conservative or liberal. I, I start to cringe when folks wanna put on the labels because most human beings are way too dynamic for one of the labels to consistently always apply. My wife was real fond of calling me a social liberal and a fiscal conservative. Um, I just didn't think that that was good enough. And I feel still that labels divide. They do, again, all of a sudden we start to run our camps and we look at each other as adversary. When we, again, we need to be sitting down and talking about the different topics because we may have a different perspective on each and every one, and I think. Those are the things that have to happen in the crucible. Does that make sense, Josh? It does. You mentioned the, the idea that, you know, I'm going to vote for my side no matter what, and the other side is evil. I think there's a certain amount of partisanship that as a species, we're never going to get away from. You know, if you look historically in the United States, there was a time when the parties were far, the Democrat and Republican parties were far more coalitional, right? I, I think I'd heard it said, somebody had talked about, my father always voted Democrat. He never doubted that there were good, decent, intelligent people in the Republican Party, maybe even better than some of the candidates he supported, but he recognized the coalition was, well, my coalition's the Democrat, they're, they're, they're representing my particular interest, and so that's why I vote for that party. Mm -hmm. We don't really think of that so much these days. There, there, was a, there was a shift, in, for the most part, between coalitional to more ideological thinking to where now we're more like, well, it's less about me being part of the coalition and more about my party's right. 
It's right about abortion. It's right about gun rights. It's right about the taxation, on and on and on. And so therefore, I'm supporting my party for this reason. You can have both of those in a very divisive, very partisan country without necessarily thinking the other guy is evil. And that, unfortunately, as you're correct, is a little bit more what we're getting into is this sort of notion that not only is this my coalition, not only is it ideologically correct, but the other side represents an existential threat to the existence of of the United States. And it's happening weirdly at a time when both parties aren't that. I mean, I I know there are aspects, there's, you know, January 6th, I don't deny that was a watershed moment in a lot of ways. But on, and and I hate to do this both sidesism, but I'll I'll do it for this purpose. There is an elevation of, uh, we we elevate oftentimes the the actual danger the other side represents and and we overrepresent it in order to almost work ourselves into this frenzy. And this is an, this is kind of an odd national, and I think we we're kind of all at a certain degree guilty of this. It's it's almost like in order to justify the position I currently hold, it it's radical enough that I have to make a caricature out of the opponent, right. where now they're just an enemy. Now, one of the things that could be hopeful about that is I think it's a very shaky foundation. I think you can only for so long. Uh, we can go one of two ways here. We can either fight another civil war, God forbid. God forbid. Or we're going to find some way to eventually learn to live with each other. Uh, and it's going to get messy in the process. My my hope is that it, it's the latter, and that my expectation yeah. is the latter, uh, because we, you know, we, we've got people, we're looking at each other through a screen. People talk awful big when they're through a screen. They do. You know, this is do. D- different than when we fought the actual civil war in this country. Uh, we didn't have the North and the South sitting on laptops tweeting, you know, from an <laughs> a, anonymous source with with no, you know, retribution to themselves. The, the keyboard commandos is, is a yes. big problem in our nation. And we do see, you know, January the 6th, and there have been many, many other instances in this country where that does translate to actual physical violence. I'm not saying that that can't happen. But there is a disconnect, I think, between the visceral we express and we think in our minds versus how we actually functionally live our lives. If we actually believe as a people what we express, I think we would have a much more violent reaction. And so there's a disconnect between what we say and think and what we're actually doing. And that has to resolve itself at some point. Absolutely. Totally agree. I mean, we see it in some of the responses that, you know, folks mention when you unfortunately turn on the news, right? I've, I've asked some GOP friends over time, right? And, and one of my real, uh, he was strong Republican, good friend. But, you know, I asked him, I said, would you ever invite Donald Trump to your house to have dinner with your daughter? And he was like, hell no. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, th- that's <laughs> it, right? Literally, can't, that should just be it. That, that we, yeah. we really shouldn't discuss anything else. And I can see the pain in your face as you try to, to mitigate that. As yeah. you try to reconcile that within yourself, back to your point, you know, I, 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 I want to stick with my team over here, right? You know, this is my coalition. And, okay, well, I'm looking over here at Derek, and he's clearly not evil. In fact, we're good friends. But, damn it, this is my team. Yeah. But then he just asked me that question, and no, I wouldn't let that smarmy guys get anywhere near my kid. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> but you're going to give him your vote? I mean... There are better Republicans. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and we get that. And we get that. 
And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you in that, you know, um, I think about the guy over in Alpharetta who after January 6th, you know, here in Metro Atlanta, he killed himself because he saw, you know, what had happened and he had been there. And to your point, you know, this machine can be toxic. This, this apparatus, again, to me, Web 2.0 is going to help us. We're going to clear our minds and engage at a better level and elevate our politics. No, we, the, the, the armchair keyboard commandos came out and motivated all of us to sling mud at each other at digital light speed. And some of it expressed itself in the real world, unfortunately. For some of us, they, 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 they experienced that, they did it, they executed on it, and they regretted it immensely. So much so that that guy took his life. He just couldn't live with what he had done. And to your point, we just got to figure it out. We got to resolve it. And I believe we can. I Like you said, I, I hope and believe in the latter. I do too. And I think this is actually the way to do it, right? Get back to where discourse is real and legitimate. And for many of us who want to get into that space, I think we need to get offline more, right? You know, we use the tools as they are necessary and can be used, but we just got to stop throwing crap at each other when we know that that's totally unnecessary and it doesn't move the needle forward. In fact, it pulls us back. Yeah, it, it, that it does. It's, you know, you mentioned you need to get off. We need to get offline more. Um, one of my, I, th I think one of the, trying to think how to phrase this, Yuval Levin, he's a thinker with American Enterprise Institute. I think he's one of the most articulate, uh, you know, uh, he's one of the conservatives most worth listening to today. He's not that much older than I am. The guy's just immensely smart. And he has this way of communicating that tends to cut across a lot of divides where a lot of people listen to him as like, yeah, I know he's a conservative, but I do agree with that. One of his main points is that what we're experiencing uh, currently, kind of to your point, is the institutions in our lives have ceased to be formative and they're now performative. And we can see these, you know, Donald Trump on Twitter is probably the archetype example where, where back when he was on Twitter and president of the United States would occasionally tweet something about this is a problem, somebody needs to do something about it. Well, it turned out he was the elected guy to do something about it. You know, it doesn't get much more performative than that. <laughs> sort of a, I, I've now attained the office of presidency and I'm going to use this, what? as a platform for myself, <laughs> but he's not the only person that does this. Most of us do this. Do it. Yes. Most of us occupy, you know, small eye institutions and we think of them, the church we're in, uh, all, all the way up to the elected members of Congress, United States Senate. Every member of the House of Things is running for Senate. Every Senator is running for president. They're not doing the freaking job we elected them to do. They're yeah. using it to say, this is a problem and somebody needs to do something about it. And nobody seems to be interested in governing it anymore. And, oh my God. And this is a problem, you know, that not only are, you know, these elected officials, but it turns out us, the little guy, you know, not, not the intellectuals, not the, not the guys, we're, we're all doing this to a certain degree. And, and there's this a complex reason why this has happened. Part of it is that it turns out institutions are uncomfortable a lot of us prefer the platform, you know, because a formative institution is necessarily limiting in nature. Your family, as wonderful as it, as it is, is limiting. It, it puts certain demands on you. So too does your church, if you're going to be faithful to it. You're, you're willingly sacrificing part of what you would probably ordinarily rather be doing 
to meet together with a body of believers that you may not necessarily get along with all that well. That's right. And, and, you know, kind of the old model of church centuries ago, you didn't, you didn't have this. Well, this church has a better kids program, but I like the pastor better at this one. And I really like the message of this one. You just went to one church and you had to put up with these people. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a very unusual thing to kind of change this, this preference. And look, I, I celebrate the choices we have in this life. Thank God for them. But I think this is wearing thin our institutions uh, because it's hard to subject ourselves to that uh, to, to that limitation. Yuval Levin put it as what we need is connection that takes place within durable forms. And you keep you, you're talking about the Web 2.0. That's not a durable form. That's connection. Yeah. That's you know social media is connection. It connects us all. What it isn't is sort of a long-standing institution with its own rules that we recognize. Okay, when I'm, you know, I said earlier, I'm a CPA by day, I'm a podcaster by night. When I'm a CPA, I've got this hat on. When I'm a podcaster, I've got this one on. There's certain rules and mores and customs that if I'm going to be a good CPA and a good podcaster, I need to know how to adhere to these things. Same with your church, same with Congress. And, and those are durable forms that I think we undervalue uh, because of the, pl- the plethora of choices we have. Right. And it's really to our detriment. Very much so. And like you said, I've got all these choices. I get to choose. I get to express. And unfortunately, I also get to perform. And to your point, um, an institution unto myself, whereas I'm going to post everything, every little thing, so you can see it. You can see me while I'm still. You can see me in action. You can even see me while I'm eating, talking about it, telling you about it, and I'm eager for you to listen to me. Because in this instance, I have to be heard. I am the most important. Oh, but wait a minute. I I don't necessarily have an original thought about it. I I picked that thought up from somebody else and I'm gonna magnify it and they're gonna magnify it and they're gonna magnify it. And I didn't even do any due diligence. I didn't apply a critical thinker's hat to really think, does that resonate with me? Is that really who I am? We've got to get back to that. And if you would be posting, you know, um, careful on misinformation and disinformation, right? Careful on performative posting. You're so busy posting about your life and what you believe in the things that you want to do or are doing that you're not living your life. And you're not supporting those aspects, those institutions that if we look back and consider and act and think to act with a critical thinker's approach and mindset, we'd be living so much better. Yeah, that exactly. Is so important. But I want to stop that, that, that line of thought right now because I haven't gotten back to how you got here. And we were supposed to do that part, John. So, you, you know, I mean, we, I mean, we've eaten up minutes too, but yeah. we need you to tell the world, okay, how did you fall into I'm, I'm hero conservative podcaster by night and um, I'm all about saving elephants? How did that come about? Well, it was, it was a slow creation over time. I have been a lifelong Republican slash conservative to the ability I had uh, the capacity to understand it. And, and it's one of those things, it's like a lot of things in life where the more you learn about it, the more you realize how ignorant you were the entire time and still remain ignorant. And so I don't claim to have reached the pinnacle of conservatism, but I always express a sort of feeling of the right, say, overall, even at a young age. 
Um, I was very interested in politics. I'm very grateful that when I went to college, I went to a small college, uh, they ended the political science program the semester I got there. And I say that because I think it helped recalibrate me towards accounting, CPA, where I obviously, you know, eventually went. That was a completely different world that allowed me to sort of experience, you know, I don't want to say the real world because politics is the real world, but allowed me to be something other than just a political uh, animal or machine, because I think I could have possibly gotten caught up in what I now recognize to be the problem had I not had the sort of benefit of distance and hindsight with it. That being said, I had recognized even in college, there was sort of a pre-Trumpy, I'll say, populism that never really sat well with me. At College of the Ozarks, I was involved with College Republicans, and one of the prior presidents of the College of the Republicans thought it was his duty to root out the two liberal professors he could find on the entire campus. Wow. This was an unusually conservative school. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, and, and that's what he was trying to do. He is very much, I, 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 I haven't talked to him in years, but I would assume if he had not changed his trajectory, would be 110% with the direction the GOP has, has gone. It is this idea of fighting. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, there is an aspect in which fighting is a, a viable uh, component. But I think there's also things we take into perspective that maybe it's actually to our advantage to have two liberal professors <laughs> on, on the campus. <laughs> you know, maybe this allows a sort of free thought and aren't we at college supposed to be learning these things? Anyhow, right. I don't mean to get off on that, but I guess I'm saying I recognize kind of what emerged in 2016 was that sort of, you know, the crazy uncle that'll show up and spell all these crazy theories. I never appreciated how many crazy uncles there were in the party. Yay. And, and I think in, in looking back at the history of the GOP, I recognize now that there's always been this battle between populism and, and I guess what we might call elitism. Now, let me be super clear here. That does not mean I'm drawing some bright line between the elites are always right, the populists are always wrong. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of ways in which the elites get it wrong. And there are, and, and the best, the best combination is when you have, and I'm not saying he's he's, you know, the he didn't have his faults, but someone's like, say, Ronald Reagan, who had this ability to understand the elites, but also communicate to the populist base. I'm not anti-populist in that sense. Uh, but there's a big difference between a Ronald Reagan and a Donald Trump, between what actual, they both resonate with a populist base, but they had radically different messages. And, and radically, and honestly, I would even say one is more a grifter or a, a demagogue or, or near demagogue, and Reagan was not. So all no, that no, means- Okay, you, you can say demagogue, Josh. You can, well, fact, it, you, can, it, you can slide demagogue into- you know, it'd be kind of cool to be a dictator. I consider it. I know it's not American, but it'd be hugely great. <laughs> and, and I don't mean this as an insult to Donald Trump, but part of the reason I'm uncomfortable calling him a demagogue is he lacked the patience and ability, honestly, to pull it to off. Become I, I agree. I think it would have, if that were, you know, if he could run for demagogue in the United States, he would have. Uh, but he didn't seem to have the interest of trying to right. really think through what does this actually take? He just had more of the impulses rather than the, <laughs> rather than the stick to itiveness. Uh, but anyhow, I, I don't mean to get off too much there. As you can see here, building up to 2016, that was really a watershed moment for me when I would have conversations with friends and family and realize that what they meant by conservatism was a little different than what I meant. Yeah. But that I don't know that I fully understood what I meant. And so that's what kind of got me interested. Okay, well, what is conservatism? 
And the more I began to read Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley and Thomas Sowell and Edmund Burke, uh, and I, I have a blog post of 50 conservative thinkers worth your time, so I'm not going to list 50 names for you. Uh, <laughs> but, but these godfathers and godmothers of this movement, I just had this sort of moment of like, I feel like I've been cheated. I've called myself a Republican, a conservative my entire life. I've never really dug into this. And it turns out these are amazing arguments, you know, that, that just people who wrestle with some profound truths uh, and, and often intention never fully resolve some of these tensions. Why are we not talking about this more? And part of it, I understand you were talking earlier and, and I, I don't expect the right to ever become everyone is reading Edmund Burke on a Tuesday evening, nor would I necessarily want them to. But I think there's a way in which kind of, again, going back to the Ronald Reagan model, there's a healthier version uh, among the intellectuals that find a way to communicate that to the masses that resonates with them. And I think you know it when you see it. And, it, and, it, and it's, we see the opposite today. There's a lot of discontent. There's a lot of divisiveness. There's a lot of anger. That's a very unhealthy and quite frankly, anti-conservative emotion. Like you, you don't start with, here's what I hate and what I want to tear down. It's that's literally that there might be things worth hating, worth tearing down. I have no quarrel with that idea. But if that's the root of your political ideology, there's something terribly wrong there and terribly unhealthy. Yes, something very flawed. Oh, a lot of powerful nuggets in the things you just said, Josh. Lots of powerful nuggets. I um I don't know. Um you know, not necessarily a Ronald Reagan fan myself. It's funny, my daughter and I were talking about him. She's learning about him, but I told her he was a he was an actor by trade who moved over into politics and he was able to very deftly and effectively leverage a network. I've been very fond of telling folks that I've coached and mentored over the years, build a network, leverage a network, create an opportunity. And he did that to a very large degree. He was he he had the ability to shake a hand with a person and turn a person into a friend. And he could do that across multiple divides to, to make it real plain. He could, he was very successful at that, no matter what side of the fence you stood on, what color you were, honestly. He, could, he, he was able to get that done with a large number of people. And he was able to use that to catapult himself into the White House. And when that man spoke, people listened. He wasn't a great communicator for nothing. And yeah. you know, his quotes resonate down the ages and we still hear them clearly today. There was just some things that he did that I don't agree with, but I can't take away from the fact that he was a great president. You know, he, he knew how to move masses and that's really a large part of the job. But unfortunately, again, especially as we evolve as people, uh, our tools, our constructs, that's where I think to your point, we've got to be careful because it, it's like you said, Right now, I was, I was saying this on another show. We lament the permanent campaign, but the permanent campaign is necessary. You know, if you're not the one doing it, somehow it's got to be done. And I remember when Barack Obama wrote this in one of his books and he couldn't stand it. He was like, you, you got to stop campaigning and start governing. The only reason he earned my vote and earned my vote again is because I take the thing very personally. But I look at it as, you know, I, I read. And, and that's another issue, right? And we can't discount that. You said that, you gotta read. I read his first book and I found it resonated with a lot of things that I like individually, things that I study. 
And he put the same stuff in his platform. And I could go out there and see he wrote it in his platform. He wrote it. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I was like, wow, that's the same stuff he was talking about in that book. And he's really not talking about tearing anybody down. And, you know, you got to look past him when he says that fair share thing, I think. And then he's talking about he's, he's cutting taxes too. Now he's raising some. But, okay, the guy sounds reasonable to me. Got my vote. He started to try and act on some of those things. And then he stuck with him and said he was going to do it again. And in the middle of all that, he stopped campaigning. You know, there were whole movements that rose up out of it, again, that exposed a lot of ugly stuff that still persists, right? And we needed to do that, in my opinion. When folks are talking about, you know, we're post-racial, well, clearly not. <laughs> it's, that's not true, no. But it's okay, I think, like you said, as long as we choose the latter, we get together and we figure it out. But again, you got to figure out how to take some of these most contextual, deep, you know, um, um, rarefied thoughts and ideas about how we do things and communicate them to the masses. I call it, to, to me, it's the TikTok message. You know, uh, the masses, the myrmidons and the people, <laughs> you consume the information in, in, in packets. You know, they don't have long spans. You, you, you're gonna struggle. To take someone into my, I have a library. I don't have a living room. I think it's a wasted space in a home. And in my library, on my shelf in the right, are two books by Thomas Sowell. Um, you're not going to get a lot of people to read Thomas Sowell. You got a lot of which, people. Which two books, by the way? I don't have to go back in and look at the names. Okay. Them, it's been a minute. But okay. <laughs> I read that guy. And I, when I first started reading him, Josh, I didn't realize he was conservative. It was just something that somebody recommended to me. And they said, you should read this guy. Yeah. You talk like you might like some of his stuff. And I did. <laughs> and I was like, you know, after the fact, I was I was so into it. I read it. And it was, oh, he's a he's a he's a hard conservative, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A very staunch conservative. But again, when I heard that and then started to internalize that, I didn't necessarily understood what he meant by that. And again, that's the context. That's the nuance. So the campaigning. The continuance of message, all of these are the things we have to figure out because Josh is not going to get a lot of people to sit down and have a conversation like you and I. This is not going to happen. But if we could elevate some of the, the more salient parts of the challenges we're discussing and throw them out there, like, you know, chump for the Myrmidons. I should stop saying Myrmidons. Um, fresh meat for the people, <laughs> you know, then they will consume that. And I think that's what's important, you know, a, a, a reciprocating and, and repetitive message of they're not evil, stop and listen, they're trying to do a good thing. You know, that was less than 12 syllables, you know, but that's at the heart of the message, right? Yeah. That's what we need people to do. He's going to run for office and he's not going to incite insurrection. We might not like everything he's going to do, but let's take the time because that's the hard work of being an American citizen look at each and everything that this person is trying to do and figure out whether or not it resonates. Is it the right thing? First for me as an individual, then my family, then my community, my city, state, nation, the globe. And that's the political calculus that I think you need to apply to each and every single vote. I'll tell you, Josh, I went from reading the platforms and I always do this. I tell folks, even if you're a staunch Democrat, you got to go look at the other side, go to the sites, 
Go pick up their stuff. You got to read it. Oh, Derek, you're going to tell I got to read. Dude, reading is fundamental. Remember that? <laughs> we learned that in school a long mm -hmm. time ago. <laughs> I hate to tell you, but you need to read. I went to read Trump's platform and all he had on his website were videos. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, Jesse. His first website, nothing but videos, all talking points. There wasn't a large platform of material to be read and I was shocked. I started going around telling people and I was shocked again when few people seemed to care. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. People again, reading is fundamental. We need to understand and deeply contextualize what he's thinking and why and what he wants to do. Shit, Eric, he wants to make America great. What are you, hard headed? You have been one of my closest Republican friends and I've never heard you say anything like that before. I need, I need more material. Come on. We, you can't leave me with that. Layla, come on, come on. Okay, no, no, listen, I'm have a conversation. We've got to be able to do more of that. But we can't elevate folks, in my opinion, who will embrace the permanent campaign to such a large degree, will not give me details on what it is you really want to do so I can understand it. I want to understand the financial mechanism whereby another nation is going to be financially responsible for something that we think our nation needs to do. And it's gonna tie them to it fiscally. I, 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 you know, it's a good talking point, but I don't see how that works. And clearly neither did President Trump because it didn't work. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the Mexicans never came close to paying for the wall. The Americans did for the wall that we got. And what's the wall doing now? It's not keeping our drugs, it's killing animals. It's killing animals. It's killing foot for foot. You know, fluffy, flurry, furry things. This is, this is not good stuff. This is not good stuff at all. But yes, yes, yes. All of that to, to say, uh, to your point, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I know somehow we've got to figure it out because the nation is will continue to remain hungry for messaging. Hungry. I mean, Trump is still campaigning. Oh, yeah. He's still campaigning. And even though a lot of folks might not show up to one of the events, Josh, you can't deny it's effective. It works. It works. And to me, fearfully, that way lies demagoguery. We'd be in a hot mess if you get somebody up there that can figure it out. I don't know. I think that's, that's my concern. What do you think? It is, yes. I think if there's one thing that Trump demonstrated, and as we were talking earlier, like I'm uncomfortable using the label demagogue for the reasons I mentioned to Trump. But I think what it does demonstrate is the United States is capable of elevating a demagogue. And that's terrifying uh, because it's one of those things that I think we always wanted to believe to one extent or another. Well, that happens in third world countries, but it exactly. could not happen here. Exactly. And, and, it, and I think we also all recognize it could happen here, but it was a sort of notion that there were enough institutional and cultural uh, prohibitions that it was like, yeah, maybe several hundred years in the future or something. And, and there still are, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of times January the 6th, I think if anything in the 2020 election, uh, as much as there were uh, terrible things that happened um, throughout that entire process, I think there are also amazing things that happened and unsung heroes at very low court you know, county clerk levels in multiple places around the United States where it turns out the institutions held, but man, they were, they were close to breaking. Yes. <laughs> a couple of key places we could have seen something far worse. Uh, so thank God we have several centuries of these 
institutions built up and 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 we're not as susceptible to demagoguery as say other countries that don't have that advantage. Um, but there's nothing in the DNA of an American that makes us different than third world country citizens, right? This we're perfectly capable of of uh, you know experiencing the sort of hard life that they do if we lose people. our cultural mores. Yeah, you know, we're all yeah. We're, we're it turns out we're human all the way down. There's nothing superior about us. Uh, to the extent there's anything superior, it's more the culture we've inherited, that's right. and that's and that's something worth defending. It's something worth saying. Hey, this is important. Uh, these we should subject ourselves to this. It's it's not not all cultures will just somehow um, morally neutral in some sense. Uh, Perhaps we should be conservative and preserve the culture <laughs> that we've created and continue the hard work of evolving yes. it to make it better. No, absolutely, and and there is a there's an interesting idea. You know, the uh, much is made about Donald Trump when he was first elected, his inaugural speech, "American Carnage," and a lot of people have made a lot of observations about this. That whether or not you were a Republican that tended to support or not support Donald Trump at that time, told an awful lot about whether or not you both personally lived and also believed in the idea that the American dream was dead. And I can't deny that across the United States, whether or not the American dream is dead in the minds of people, kind of depends on where you live and the communities you inhabit. That's right. And that is a real problem. That is, as I was saying earlier, it's not always about the elites have it right. I don't believe that. And this is one way in which the elites are completely off base, usually, is their blindness to that fact. And that fact is what gives rise to a demagogue, that brokenness in the United States that we need to acknowledge exists, both in terms of people can't find work, or they can't get out of their stuck situations, or their communities are devastated, uh, or their sense of cultural cohesion somehow has been devastated. That's a complex issue. We, we could spend a whole hour trying to talk about why and what we what we need to do about it. But I think it needs to be acknowledged that the masses, you know, they're not the masses who support a demagogue are not necessarily always evil themselves. That tends to mean there's a sort of brokenness in their lives where they've lost uh, the ability to be good citizens of a republic, say. A republic's a scary thing. It takes an awful lot of self-regulation. It takes work. Uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of cultural cohesion. When those things are broke, a, Republican, a republic doesn't just keep going. And so I think there needs to be a recognition, okay, there's brokenness in this country. How do we address those things? Rather than, and I, and I know you're not doing this, but that, that's, I, I think there's that temptation to just say, well, the masses are the, my apologies, what term do you keep using? The Myrmidons. Myrmidons, thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's easy to do that, right? Say, well, we just got a bunch of lunkheads out here and that explains everything. Well, there's people hurting. When yeah. people hurt, it makes it difficult sometimes for them to participate in a healthy uh, democratic republic. I would say it like this, right? Because, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the term again. We, we don't just... They, they, a lot of these people are just hardworking. They don't become Myrmidons because they want to. Yeah. Like it's something is broken. As the zeitgeist moves forward, the ability to make it positive and thriving starts to fail because you can't eat, because you can't pay all the bills. And it's funny because, again, reading is fundamental. Funny but ugly. But all we need to do, to your point, is a little bit more reading and looking back. And it's always the same. The demagogue rises when, to a a large degree, the people are suffering. 
and they will go to anyone who promises that they will get a drink of water and something wholesome to eat at home, that they can fix it. Whether they know how to or not, if they can say that with passion and, 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 and a compelling message, then they will come out on top. We see it every single solitary time. And it's usually those guys with so much character, so much panache and they're suave and they, they know how to just get in front of people and move crowds. And that person may have no intention or to your point, the capability of understanding of how to feed that mass, but they don't care. And, and that's where the demagogue or the dictator steps in and the Myrmidons will step up and they will, they will, they will harm each other in order to support that power structure. And that is when we lose our Republic. You, you, you said it clearly, right? You know, it takes work. It takes a lot of work. You gotta be engaged. All politics is local. That road outside your house, you have responsibility for that. And if you don't go to city council or pay attention to the zoning meetings and, and what's coming up, then you won't know and things will happen to you. They will happen around you. They will happen to you. They will roll over you. It all matters. And like you said, Josh, it's how we get, it's how we figure out that taking all of that content, some of it, unfortunately, we can go ahead and call it highbrow content, academic content, things that would require you to sit down for a few hours and really dive deep and, and struggle with the words so you can try and find the deep meaning of what these really superior thinkers are talking about. You know, they don't settle on saying liberalism is this, conservatism is this. It's constant critical conflict within the crucible of crucial thought. It's essential cognition. It requires you to put your mind to work and look at the nuance because every single situation is not the same. And that is how you run a government, a republic that is supposed to be founded on the basis of liberty. Everyone has needs. And right now I know equity is becoming a poisonous word, but equity is, in, it is buried deep within the very concept of liberty. That means, you know, I make so much money a year and these are my opportunities, but I drive down the street and that lady, I don't know her level of education, but she's sitting over there on a bench every single day. And it's very clear that she's homeless. What happened to her? And is that acceptable? Is that acceptable in the land of liberty? Should that be? Should that be? My answer is no. And it's a problem to be fixed. But if she becomes one to 10 to 50 to 500, I tell my friends all the time, you think communism just came out of the clear blue sky because people said, hey, we want to be communists now. Is that what you think happened? Really? Go read. <laughs> Go read. The, you know, the, the whole message of for the workers, you know, the, the workers and people unite. However, Lenin said it, that just, you know, and, to, and, and again, to that point, yeah, you want, like you said, you want that in school. You, 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 in fact, you want a few of them in school. So, hey, I need to dissect you. I need to have a conversation about this communist thing. I'm not liking it too tough, but why do you think that would work better? Explain it to me, you know? And like you said, we can have a whole conversation about that too, right? You know, there are reasons communism doesn't work. And I happen to believe that that's not an opinion. 
you know, but that's me being strident. I think it doesn't work and can't work because people are people. And like you said, that we can have conversations about those topics uh, on another show. But I don't think it can work because we are not essentially com communal by nature in large numbers. We don't work like that. <laughs> Eventually, I'm going to want what you got. You know, I want an $80 billion yacht too. <laughs> you know, how'd you get that? Well, I don't, we don't, we don't, that's not equitable and we're not uniting. We, I think we should have the same job, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but all of that comes out of context, education, engaging, dialogue, discussion. You know, uh, the, the United States of America is a, a democratic republic. And again, best example of governing in human history by, by, by far, in my opinion, even with that evil founding at its root, that, um, that thing that we're continuing to work on excising, but all of that's part of the work. And they're facts. You shouldn't hide them. You shouldn't discount them. You shouldn't act like they weren't there. You should call it what it is. It was evil. It was bad. And we should all continue to strive to be better. And it's good to have different sides. It's good to lean into discomfort. It's good to have conflict, as long as it's positive. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, we don't, we don't, we don't elevate uh, insurrectionists who thinks it's okay to try and drop a nuclear weapon on a storm in order to break it up. That's, I've, I struggle to figure out how you got out of high school thinking that that would work. But again, um, a, a one, another great American who is not necessarily to be admired once said, only in America, <laughs> only in America. Yes, the land of the free will give rise to a person in great power who thinks it's acceptable to control the weapon the, the weather with weapons of mass destruction. Okay. <laughs> All right, now I'm going to get off my high horse with some of that, Josh. You've inspired me this morning. I got to tell you, it's been a very, very pleasant conversation. And um, I, I always love coming knee to knee with folks who think differently and consider things from, from different aspects because, you know, that's what we need to do, right? But I definitely wanted you to um, make sure you close us out with your final words. And we didn't and we didn't do this part. So I want to highlight this before you talk about uh, your final word in, in your podcast. But as you started to dive into this and and showcasing these things, you know, what 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 was the the I know one cultural touch point was in school. What was the next one? What catapulted you into saying this is what I have to do? You mean after school? Yeah. Well, in a lot of, and I think I mentioned this in a lot of ways, it was the 2016 election. That was, I think, for a lot of us, a watershed moment uh, in that continuous evolution of, gosh, I thought all these people I knew believed the same thing I did. And it turns out we were all a little different there and trying to wrestle with that discomfort. I'm right. from a, I'm from the, you know, I'm from Oklahoma. It's a very red state. So it's not hard yeah. to find too many Republican Trump supporters. <laughs> uh, and so I had to find ways to, um, maintain some of these relationships while respectfully disagreeing, if you will. How are you doing that, right? Because that's the challenge, right? Is you, are people finding your message of saving elephants that it, it, it resonates? Does it, does it make sense to them? Or are they pushing back hard on you? It depends. Uh, people are complicated and they run the gambit. And some people are very receptive. Some people have said, you know, Josh, I think you're right about these things. I think most of us as good Americans, we learn how to have 
polite conversations where we skirt around sometimes the issues. And that's okay to a certain degree. Sometimes your, your relationships can't all be about, hey, here's what we disagree with about. Let's let's talk about this for the next hour. That's right. Uh, there there are, and, and I'm, you know, I've experienced far less than what some have, but there, you know, there was an individual who uh, literally contacted my employer trying to get me uh, presumably terminated for wow. the opinions I held um, for what I, I, I think it was kind of, he was deeply disturbed by my opinions per se, but it all centered around a particular tweet that in isolation, I have no, I, uh, I, I won't go through the whole thing, but it, he claimed I was saying disparaging things against Donald Trump's wife, which was not at all true. I, I wasn't saying anything about her. It was more someone else trying to uphold her as a model. And I was saying things about that person. Anyhow, yeah, um, it, it, if, if you follow me on Twitter, I think you'd be hard pressed to find that many inflammatory things I'm saying, unless you just disagree with them. I can understand it being inflammatory. I don't, I don't play the, I don't put people down. I don't call people names. There's a lot of that going on on Twitter. So it was a very unusual comment, but anyhow, that's like, I said, that, that, that was rare occasionally. And I've had some people, you know, unfriend me and things like that fairly mild, but it's, it's for the most part, people are complicated and it turns out our lives are a lot more deep and rich than just who we happen to vote for. Um, And so you can maintain those relationships, albeit sometimes with tension. Good deal. Good deal. I really do appreciate that insight. So we're coming up on it. And as ever, these conversations go way too fast, Josh. It's been a real pleasure. What are your final words for the audience here? Please hit them with something good. Yeah, I'm I'm not good at final words, but, you know, (laughs) something you said earlier about there's a reason communism doesn't work. There's also a reason communism is so addictive. Or, or, or sticks around that in spite of its many failures over the century, century plus, uh, there are still communists today, still individuals yeah. advocating this. And part of that reason is it fulfills a sort of longing of the human experience or the human soul. It's not an economic argument. It's primarily a moral argument. And if we're going to successfully defeat it, we have to enter that citadel, if you will, of, of morality. Um, I say this because some of the Marxists in the United States today come from arguably the, the most elite, well-to-do families there are in some of the, you know, our higher education institutions. These are not suffering workers waiting in bread lines. These are individuals who arguably are at the pinnacle of human existence since we've known it as far as opportunity and, and access to wealth. I said earlier, there's a lot of suffering in the United States. There's a lot of areas that are not wealthy and people are um, having a hard time just making ends meet between food and medication. That being said, I also believe it's true of them too, that their primary suffering is not material. We are still a very wealthy nation in spite of the inequalities, in spite of some of the poverty. Their primary suffering is lack of community, lack of those durable forms of institutions. I think at root, what we're talking about here is not inequality, it's not economic, it's spiritual. There's something broken in the American soul. And I think until we resolve that and until we have serious conversations about why are people suffering and what are apolitical reasons, right? Let's get away from politics entirely. What is it people need to fulfill those longings in their souls in healthy respects? I don't know that we'll ever resolve these other issues we've been talking about. Powerful, powerful. Well, okay, you might not say you, you do a lot of closing statements, but Josh, that was a powerful closing statement that <laughs> opens the doorway to several deep conversations, I must say. Thank you 
for taking the time to etch the edges with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Josh Lewis has provided us with a perspective that without question demands critical consideration. Why are people suffering and what is it we must do to truly resolve these critical issues? Powerful questions, born of powerful conversation. Thank you, Josh, for etching the edges with us today. And of course, we have to thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. So please like and subscribe. Tell your family, tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Etch the Edges. And don't forget to visit our website at EtchTheEdges.com. Check us out. Join the movement. Express your commitment to the cause. Cause for a better America, a better world, where we all can stand together at the mountaintop. Do it for America. Indeed. Do it for a better world. Be good to yourselves and each other. We'll see you next time. Thank you.